You're listening to the SIL Podcast, perspectives on art and technology with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 64, The Undefinable Spirit. Dr. Claudia Six talks to us about discovering your sexual soul in her book, Erotic Integrity. There are definite differences in emotional expression. And again, I hate to generalize. There are women who have a hard time expressing emotionally, and there are men who are very emotionally expressive. But on the whole, men have a harder time identifying their emotions and verbalizing them. You just have to give them the space. Also, women tend to interrupt. And when you interrupt a man, you miss what he was going to say afterwards. And just because a man stops talking doesn't mean he's done. It means he's thinking about what he's going to say next. Thank you. (laughs) Could you have a a talk with my wife? Could you repeat that, please? (laughs) (laughs) Could you have a chat with my wife while you're here? Anyway, carry on, sorry. (laughs) And, And women are missing a lot of the good stuff because... They're communicating with men the way they communicate with women. Right. And then they mm. complain that there's communication problems. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that make me. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about sex. Our guest today, born and raised in France, Dr. Claudia Six, has been a clinical sexologist for over 25 years. She currently runs a private practice in San Rafael in the San Francisco area where she sees individuals and couples dealing with relationship and sexual issues. Her credentials include earning a PhD in clinical sexology and a master's degree in counseling psychology, and she's regularly invited to speak on the radio and at conferences, has been featured on TEDx, contributes to popular magazine articles, and today we're fortunate enough to have her Join us by phone from San Francisco here on the SIL podcast to discuss her new book, Erotic Integrity, How to Be True to Yourself Sexually, which won or was nominated for eight awards. So here we are, and welcome to our podcast. Thank you, gentlemen. Now, we both read your book and watched your TED Talk on sexual performance anxiety in women, something traditionally associated with, or at least aimed at, men. Which leads me to a reference in your book attributed to multi-Grammy Award winner, American blues guitarist and singer Robert Cray, who his song Consequences voices the lyrics, Not a day goes by that a man doesn't have to choose between what he wants and what he's afraid to lose. Do you think this statement applies only to men? And isn't this personal struggle, at least in part, what your new book Erotic Integrity deals with? Absolutely. And I'm honored that you both read the book because that's not always the case. Mm. And it's wonderful. You are the only ones who have noted that quote. And yes, I think it's a wonderful quote because we are often in a position to decide whether or not to choose our limitations or decide that we want more for ourselves. And no, it doesn't apply only to men. It applies also to women. And so you tied into your question, you know, the TED Talk about performance anxiety. 
And in the TED Talk, I talk about performance anxiety for women Mm. because people tend to think that men have the monopoly on performance anxiety, but that is far from the case. And I say that women have it at least as much as men. It just looks entirely different. I often have women in my practice who come in and say, you know, Dr. Six, it's not happening. I'm not interested. My husband is frustrated and I'm not interested. So it could sound like it's a desire issue, Mm. but I have often found, as I ask a lot of questions, which is part of the process of helping people discover their erotic integrity, that actually women are anxious about sex just as much as men are. Mm. And I say men are like microwaves and women are like crockpots mm-hmm. because <laughs> men can get aroused a lot more quickly than women can. Right. Men have testosterone, which is a wonderful thing, but women don't have so much of it. And it's not good or bad. Men tend to get aroused a lot more quickly than women, but women get anxious about catching up, about... Are they going to get turned on enough? Are they going to get turned on fast enough? Is he going to get bored? Is he going to get lockjaw? Is he going to think they're frigid? And women get in their heads, and that slows things down for them. Anxiety for men speeds things up, Mm. and anxiety for women slows arousal way down and makes it harder for them to get in the game. So when you quote Robert Cray, not a day goes by that a man doesn't have to choose between what he wants and what he's afraid to lose. I invite people to examine whether they want more for themselves. It's part part of erotic integrity Mm -hmm. is, is figuring out who are you really as a sexual being and owning it and what is that going to look like for you. So women also have to decide if they want more for themselves or if they want to just assume that they're broken or assume that they're not interested or not want to deal with the discomfort of handling their performance anxiety. Does that answer your question? Mm. Yeah, beautifully. Let me ask you this, Dr. Six. Um, You title the book Erotic Integrity. And there are three kind of words that swirl around this whole part of our lives, and that is eroticism, sexuality, and sensuality. Can you talk a little bit about how they relate to each other? Can you be erotic without being sexual, sensual without being erotic, etc.? How do they relate to each other, those three things? That is an excellent and complex and very personal question, mm. and I will attempt to answer your question. But I will also say that I try to not define things for people. So can somebody be sexual but not erotic? I'll start with that. I would say yes. If somebody is just having functional sex or they're just interested in fucking and getting off and rolling over and going to sleep Mm -hmm. and it serves a purpose, like brushing your teeth or whatever, I would say that that is being sexual, but not necessarily erotic. Now, if that is the most erotic experience that a person has had, and they think that that is the be-all, end-all of sex, and that is all that is possible, and for them, that represents the peak of their sexual experience, then maybe for that person, that is erotic. So you see how it's all very subjective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yes, I think you can be erotic and not be 
Well, so then you've got to define sex. So let's start with that. As Bill Clinton so clearly illustrated, <laughs> sex has different definitions for different people. <laughs> and I define sex as intercourse. I define being sexual as whatever somebody feels is sexual. For some people, kissing is not that sexual, but holding hands is. Mm-hmm. It's something you only do with somebody with whom you are sexual, something you only do with your lover. So holding hands in and of itself may not seem like a sexual behavior, but for that person it might be. Mm-hmm. So it gets complex and it really is about self-definition. And when I talk about erotic integrity, I want to know if people are in integrity with who they feel themselves to be as an erotic being. And we all have, John Money talked about love maps. We all have sort of what I call an emotional fingerprint, a way that we are put together sexually that defines us. Mm -hmm. Now, unlike a fingerprint, Our sexuality and our eroticism can evolve over the course of a lifetime. I love it when I have clients in their 60s and 70s who are discovering things about their sexuality. Somebody can feel like an erotic being, yet not have a sexual partner. Mm -hmm. Right. And then it kind of gets into this question that being asexual has become a very popular term in popular media. When Caitlyn Jenner came out, Mm. it's like Facebook had all these dozens of different categories for people to define their sexuality on Facebook, and it kind of went a little over the top. But I think that's when the word asexual started getting thrown around. In fact, just a couple of days ago, I was listening to a podcast on French radio Mm. about being asexual, and I kind of disagree with what they were saying. So I'll tell you my take On asexuality, and it kind of ties in with what you're asking about eroticism, sexuality, and sensuality. I believe that from the moment that somebody is noticing that, gee, I have no interest in being sexual with anybody. Gee, I don't feel very sexual. Or my sexuality is something I want to keep to myself. I don't want to share it with anybody. Does that mean that person is asexual? I don't think so. I think that from the moment you have an awareness of your sexuality, that makes you a sexual being. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you're masturbating, whether or not you're having sex with anybody else, the first step of erotic integrity is self-examination, is I want people to know and understand and more fully examine what their eroticism is. It's interesting that you say that, Claudia, because you challenge readers, as you just said, uh, to self-examine, self-accept, and self-actualize for what yeah. you say is a more fulfilling sense of eroticism and to yeah. feel more confident in bed and in life in general. That's a pretty tall order. Uh, How do you overcome the fear and anxiety around your client's sexual life that they bring into the therapeutic process? So if I'm understanding your question correctly, Peter, that question pertains more to the second step of erotic integrity, which is self-acceptance. Yes. First, I I ask people a lot of questions to broaden the picture of who they might be because people tend to buy into the predominant cultural model of sexuality and don't necessarily examine much further beyond that. 
And so I kind of broaden the picture and and maybe have them realize, oh, gee, you know, well, maybe I am bisexual or maybe I am turned on by this other thing or maybe I'm doing this thing, but it actually doesn't turn me on. So really self-examine. And then it's easy for me to say, but self-acceptance is owning that. It's really coming to terms with that. So, for example, I had a client in his 50s, his wife kind of dragged them in because she had found gay porn on his computer. Mm. And when she was out of town on a business trip, he was masturbating to gay porn. And she took it very personally. And she thought it meant something about her that she wasn't attractive enough or Mm -hmm. beautiful enough or that they weren't having sex often enough or whatever. And it wasn't personal. It had nothing to do with her. And when I interviewed him um, alone to do his sexual history, because I always do individual sexual histories with people so I can focus on one person at a time, we found that he remembered that when he was in college, he'd gone to some gay clubs a few times, and he'd gone to, like, gay massage parlors and had some hands-on gay sexual experiences with men. And then he kind of like tucked all that away and then wasn't comfortable with it, so didn't revisit it, and then had a long-term heterosexual marriage. But sexuality is like an inflated beach ball. You can try and stuff it underwater, but it's going to pop up somewhere else. And you can try and stuff Mm -hmm. it underwater again, but it's going to pop up again. And so this desire of his popped up, and he only indulged it when his wife was out of town because he figured he wasn't taking anything away from his wife. But she found out and she got upset. So with this guy, self-acceptance was coming to terms with the fact that he was bisexual and getting comfortable with it. And so it took a couple individual sessions and then a couple sessions with his wife talking about it. And once she understood this, she was actually pretty open-minded and accepting. Mm. So then they had to figure out, well, how is this going to fit in our relationship? Are you going to go to gay clubs? Are we we going to watch gay porn together? Are you still going to do this on the side when I'm out of town? Are we going to talk about it? Like, what is it going to look like for us? So the self-acceptance piece is choose whether or not you want to overcome your limitations. Choose whether or not you want to choose your fear or decide that you want more for yourself. It's back to... The Robert Cray quote. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this as a corollary to this question. You know, do you think as, uh, I forget the writer's name who wrote the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. John uh, Gray. John Gray. He endorsed my book. He was very kind. Okay. Now, do you, in your practice, is that what you see, that there's a distinct difference kind of in the emotional tonality of men versus women and their ability to share those emotions? Yes. (laughs) Short answer. Uh There are huge differences. Now, most of the clients I see are heterosexual. I do see some gay couples or gay individuals on occasion. But as you mentioned at the introduction, I'm near San Francisco and you can't shake a stick without hitting a a gay therapist. (laughs) So they have lots of other options. Mm -hmm. So there are definite differences between men and women. Mm -hmm. And women tend to persist in wanting men to read their minds, which they don't. (laughs) And women tend to persist in wanting men to be emotionally like women, Mm -hmm. which they are not. 
And women don't like it when I say this because then they have to really re-examine their relationships with men and how they are. Mm -hmm. And there's also women who build men up and there are women who take men down. Mm -hmm. That also has an impact on their sex life. So there are definite differences in emotional expression. And again, I hate to generalize. There are women who have a hard time expressing emotionally and there are men who are very emotionally expressive. But on the whole, men have a harder time identifying their emotions and verbalizing them. You just have to give them the space. Also, women tend to interrupt. And when you interrupt a man, you miss what he was going to say afterwards. And just because a man stops talking doesn't mean he's done. It means he's thinking about what he's going to say next. Thank you. So, <laughs> Could you have a, t- uh, a talk with my wife? Could you re- repeat that, please? <laughs> <laughs> Could you have a chat with my you... wife while you're here? Anyway, yeah, carry yeah. on. Sorry. <laughs> and, and women are missing a lot of the good stuff because they're communicating with men the way they communicate with women. Right. And then they mm. complain that there's communication problems. So people don't know this. Mm-hmm. And in terms of sexuality, as I mentioned earlier, Men have testosterone, so they come to sex more from their crotch. Women come to it generally more from an emotional place. And I can, you know, give you my little soapbox talk about desire. And there's also a video on my website. Mm -hmm. But men have testosterone, and they have more of their sexual desire in their crotch, that horny, throbbing loins kind of feeling. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's not good or bad. It's just different than how women come to it. But it's part of what contributes to women's performance anxiety because we don't generally start in our crotch. Maybe in our 20s, but with age, it's not happening so much in our crotch. It's going north. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It happens on a different level. Earlier on, you talked about how uh, holding hands for some people could be considered an erotic act and for others not so much. And I was just, it put me in mind of your childhood years uh, spent in France, in Europe, where sexuality yeah. is much more in the open, and you might see people holding hands routinely, but not as an erotic act, just as a sense of friendship in a way. Yes. Can, can you talk a bit about your own upbringing and how you came to your understanding of sexuality? Sure. So I was born and raised in France to a British mother and a French father, which is why, in case your listeners are wondering, I don't have a French accent because I grew up bilingual. And I came to the U.S. at 19, and I just changed the accent when I got here. So my parents, probably wanting to buy themselves some time, figured they weren't going to give me the birds and the bees lecture. They were going to wait until I asked questions. But apparently, when I was five years old, I was telling my Catholic French grandmother's friends all about how babies were made when I was five years old. So I had all the information when I was five years old. Wow. Mm-hmm. I must have asked questions early. Yeah. Speaking of which, if I may interrupt you for just one second, your grandmother had a fantastic sense of humor. I love that line you gave her right in the beginning yeah. of the book where you said, my grandmother used to say when seeing a, a Catholic crucifix hanging around a woman's neck, she'd say, Jesus must be happy there between two breasts. <laughs> yes, she did. She said that. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. That she, she must had that have been a sexologist, yeah. sexologist before her time, yeah. <laughs> she was a wonderful influence on me. Yeah. Anyways, continue, please. So I had all the information at an early age. 
I personally was a late bloomer, but when I was a teenager, I was telling my friends, make sure you're on birth control, make sure you're not doing anything you don't want to do, make sure you're also getting your jollies and he's pleasuring you and it's not just him getting off. So I was the one dispensing sexual advice, even though I had no actual hands-on experience. I started giving sex counseling at an early age, and I think that in France, indeed, people are a lot more open-minded about it, and there's a lot less charge about it. There's just more openness about it, and mm. I'm still struck when I go back to Paris. I mean, I go every year, but the women walking around just have a more accessible sensuality about them right. than American women do. Mm-hmm. I think American women kind of hide their sensuality. Mm-hmm. They might dress enticingly, but they kind of shut down and hide their sensuality. And I think French women just have it more accessible. Right. That's an interesting word you use, accessible, because to a lot of listeners, they might misinterpret the word accessible as having free reign. You're talking about a different kind of accessibility. You're not talking about a wantonness. You're talking about just being themselves naturally, yeah. being expressive, but not necessarily yeah. giving you license The rules still apply, it's just a whole different sense of self. Exactly, and that's one of the ways that Americans get confused, I think, that if somebody is walking around as a sexual being, that that denotes availability, and it doesn't. It just is how, it's erotic integrity, it's how somebody carries themselves in the world. Mm -hmm. Something which I find immensely attractive, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. I'm, yeah, not, I'm I, not talking about just the physical. I'm talking about that yeah. attitude. I love that attitude. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's just about sort of owning that you're a sexual being. And it doesn't mean that you're available right then and there. And it doesn't even necessarily mean that you're engaging sexually with anybody. Mm-hmm. Walking around like a sexual being. Yeah. Yes. And that sense comes from our upbringing. We create yeah. that early on. So in your book, you talk about raising kids with erotic integrity. This really interested me. How early should children be taught about the basics of human sexuality, in your opinion? And what role or responsibility do you think parents and schools have in this process? I think kids should be taught about it as early as possible. I have a son who is just under two years old. And I change his diaper and he says, pipi and caca, because you know, I speak to him in French. Mm-hmm. And then I also say zizi, which is the French child word, not quite baby talk, but children's word for penis. Mm -hmm. And he giggles and he touches his penis. And when I'm changing his diaper, I make sure that he has time to touch his penis. And I'll say something like, ah, ça fait du bien. Like, oh, that feels good, doesn't it? And he kind of giggles and he laughs. Mm-hmm. And and we both know what I'm saying. I'm saying, wow, that feels good, doesn't it? Like, go ahead. But... It's not creepy or weird or there's nothing inappropriate about it. It's like, yeah, you know, you've got two ears. You've got one ear and you've got two ears. You've got one foot, you've got two feet. And like it's, that. it's the same kind of reaction your husband might have. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he touches his nipples, too. And I say, oh, you know, and I tell him the French word for nipples. I say, you've got one nipple, two nipples. And I just, it's the body parts. So I don't make a big deal about it. I don't shut it down. Mm-hmm. I facilitate it if it's there. Sure. And when he's older, I will also encourage it and put boundaries around it. You know, it's something you do by yourself in your bedroom. It's not something you do when we have guests over. Mm-hmm. So, and I have books. I already have books for him 
with animals making babies and animals giving mm -hmm. birth and the parts of the body and the creation of a baby. I want it to be a non-event, like a no big mm -hmm. deal. That's just me. I'm the exception. And in response to your question about whose responsibility is it, I do a sexual history on every single client who comes into my office. And since the vast majority of them are Americans, I do get some French-speaking clients, everybody says that they got a sex ed class at school. Mm. But it was the basic plumbing diagram. There was no talk of pleasure. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit of giggling. Everybody was uncomfortable. They got through it as quickly as possible, and that was it. And most people don't say, oh, I learned something. So I think it's the responsibility of the parents. But a lot of parents don't even talk to each other about sex. Mm -hmm. right. So that's a bit of a setup, you know, saying it's parents' responsibility when parents don't feel comfortable and the way that I ask the question is always, what information did you get about sex? Spoken, unspoken, implicit, or explicit? Yep. Because even though I grew up in France, it's a Catholic country. Mm -hmm. And I did get some mixed messages about nice girls don't. You get yeah. messages from the culture at large, but then you also get messages from your parents and your family and your friends and so forth. Right. That leads me to the next question, actually, quite nicely here. Fast forward that moment with, was it your grandson, you said? My son. Your son, with your son yeah. touching his zizi. <laughs> Fast yes. forward that 10 years or 15 years into the future, and suddenly that there's a word for that that people would jump to say, which is masturbation. And you talk about the Catholic religion, which has a lot to say about the appropriateness or lack of appropriateness of that action, of that act. So how do you handle that with people who have a heavy religious pressure on them about these kinds of activities? How do you deal with that? Well, babies masturbate in utero. Babies, boys touch their penises in utero. Mm -hmm. So it goes way back. And you have to be with people where they're at. So if people, if clients come in with specific religious beliefs or practices, I work with whatever their beliefs or practices are. And I might say, how is that working for you? And within the, if these are the guidelines within which you want to comport yourself, how are we going to make this work for you? Mm -hmm. It's the same thing. I just get them to self-examine and self-accept. And what is this going to look like? And how is your sexuality going to fit into your life in a way that works for you? And is that at odds with your religious beliefs and other religious beliefs you want to re-examine? Mm -hmm. Or do you want to choose the religious belief over your pleasure or that of your partner? Because that's entirely your choice. Box, box. So, what's your story? So I decided, as someone who essentially travels the world and does spoken word, that it's kind of my responsibility to spread feminist sexual positions. I have a lot of free time. I came up with three. Position number one is a dude going down on a woman. She squirts in his face. He learns to respect women. It's called the 19th Amendment. Two more. Position number two, 
is a woman riding a dude. She gets him about 30% away from an orgasm, but she gets up and leaves. It's called the Equal Pay Act. Position number three is my favorite. It's just a woman masturbating in a kitchen. A dude walks in sad. It's called Make Your Own Dinner. Box, box. Now that we're actually speaking to you and I'm actually hearing your voice, and I got this sense from your book when I was reading it without ever having met you or having spoken to you before that, you have this very kind of relaxed, non-judgmental approach and you kind of, you're eliminating labels, which I love because I think of sex as a way of being. I think of it as an attitude yeah. that you carry in life. And so for yeah. me, the playful aspect of sex has always been very, very important. The ability to laugh as well as to enjoy all the other aspects of it. So how do you separate the playful and pleasurable aspects of sex from the sex aimed at procreation? Perhaps listeners can gain something from your insight into this area. Well, most people who come to see me, it's because they want more pleasure in sex. There are also couples who come and see me because they want to have a child and they're having trouble conceiving either because they are not having sex or because despite the fact that they're having sex in an ineffective way, hmm. and I can go a little bit into that, so those couples, the sex aimed at procreation gets to be sex on command, mm. and people get battle fatigue. And it's either the quickie because she's ovulating, and it's not really about connecting or pleasure. It's just about get in, get off, and get out. Most people come and see me because they want more pleasure and they want more playfulness. And like you said, my way of talking about it is pretty informal it's informed but it's informal and mm. and light so I, I think i kind of convey that playfulness so some people come and see me because they want sex aimed at procreation and some people are just incredibly ignorant about sex and don't really know mm -hmm. how to go about it which may surprise you mm -hmm. one thing that a lot of couples don't know is that when the man having an orgasm and then the woman having an orgasm facilitates procreation. So a mm. little tip here for your listeners trying to procreate. Mm -hmm. Because if she is on her back and they're in missionary position and he ejaculates inside her, there is then what's called the seminal pool. Mm. You know, the pool of semen, the one with the diving board. <laughs> and when a woman has an orgasm, her cervix, which is like a little donut, expands and the hole in the middle of this donut opens up and the cervix dips down into the seminal pool and sucks up semen. Mm -hmm. And that facilitates the making of babies. Gynecologists don't seem to tell people this. Well, gynecologists need to lighten up too. And, and just on a personal note here, quickly here, when I was listening to you speak, it brought me back 30-odd years. We were attempting to conceive at the time. It didn't take very long. You talk to people and you hear all these things. And I was just listening going, oh my God, you know, it's such a mechanical approach. Like, do this, do that. So I jokingly said to my partner, and I actually meant it, to be honest. I said, 
let's just have sex every day. <laughs> you know, throw caution to the wind. <laughs> I thought, I'm going to get one in here somehow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because for me, let's just have some fun. Yeah. It'll happen. In fact, my theory is the more relaxed you are, the more receptive your body is to everything. So yeah. things will happen more naturally. And yeah. it's like one big playground. And let's just relax and uh, see where it goes. Yes, and the typical story is the people who do fertility treatment and then they give up and then they just let go of all the pressure and that's when they conceive. I mean, that's mm -hmm. so typical. Right, right. And it's the same in life, you know, when you're grasping because you want something and you're tightening and contracting, and it's when you release attachment to outcome is when things kind of fall into place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, your book is really powerfully giving the message that we need to understand, accept, examine, etc., what our sexual identity really is. And I'm wondering what message or advice you'd give to young people out there who are unsure of their sexual identity. Practice, practice. <laughs> I would say experiment. Uh -huh. Don't do anything that you feel is at odds with who you are, but give yourself permission to explore things that you're curious about. Mm -hmm. And own it. You can't possibly do it wrong. Mm -hmm. right. So just be safe. And I have a bit of a pet peeve about this word protection. You're talking about earlier about educating children with erotic integrity. I'm a little down on this word protection. Mm. Like sex is this dangerous thing you have to protect yourself from. Just call it birth control or safe sex or protection from STDs or whatever. Agreed. So don't do anything that compromises your health. Right. But anything that you think turns you on and is worth exploring, as long as it's not going to get you into the legal system, and as long as it's consensual, I would say experiment mm -hmm. and read. See what other people are saying about their experiments. And read my book. And can I say just a couple sentences about the book? Yes, sure, sure absolutely. So there's 10 chapters, and there's a different theme for each chapter, and the idea is that there's something in each chapter for everybody that either you can relate to or you know somebody could relate to or pertains to your best friend or someone you know. And in each chapter, there's two cases based largely on clients of mine, and I present the difficulty that the people were having that they came to me with and sort of the journey that I took them on. And so you get to be a fly on the wall in a sex therapist's office. But the idea is that the reader kind of gets to be there and see what the client went through and the questions that they asked themselves and the realizations they came to and the decisions they made about their sex lives. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so for anybody who's kind of examining or pondering, read the book, and there's probably something in there of value. Right. There's a nice balance, too, in the book between sort of academic and information-based mm -hmm. stuff and grounded examples from your practice. But I wanted to ask you this about that. Can you talk a bit about the effect of the digital age, the internet, on the dissemination of this kind of information, etc.? Is it muddy? Is it clear? I mean, mm -hmm. is, there, is there promise in this? What do you think about I that I think part? in some ways it's wonderful because for people who are isolated geographically or socially, who are questioning their sexuality, you can find everything on the internet and you can get validation mm -hmm. and you can know that you're not alone and mm -hmm. you're not the only one going through this and you can find resources. 
So, unfortunately, there are also predators on the Internet, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. And porn is readily accessible, and you don't learn to have sex by watching porn, just like you don't learn to drive by watching car chase scenes in movies. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of misconceptions in porn when people think, oh, well, this is how it's supposed to be for men and women. I mean, I've had women come in, young women think, well, I'm supposed to be like this. I'm supposed to want this and I'm supposed mm-hmm. to contort myself I'm, and I'm supposed to be in. And I'm like, no, you know, that's just that's entertainment. And there's porn for men and there's porn for women. And they're very different. And a lot of women don't know that. Don't you also think, though, that a lot of that comes from we were talking about education? Societies that are educated about these things don't even view porn the same way. Do you agree? That's an interesting question. When I am in France, you know, I was recently teaching in Paris in a graduate school. I haven't really looked at French porn and I haven't really had conversations with anybody yeah. about porn in France. I've had lots of conversations about infidelity and right. Asperger's, which is something I have a particular interest and specialty in. Okay. But I haven't examined porn. I'll have to do that. (laughs) Well, that's why I brought it up, because in societies, I've had these conversations growing up, going to university, meeting people from other cultures and so on. I had the benefit of meeting people from countries that were the antithesis of my own, which is I'm Italian, very Roman Catholic upbringing, although I'm not a practicing Catholic at all. But I met other people in specifically Scandinavian countries. And I would say that they have a certain attitude, which is very, very different from the one I was raised with. And there was a naturalness about it that kind of demystifies and takes away that censorship, which reduces that edge. Yeah, it's less loaded. It's less forbidden. It's less charged. It's it's less taboo. Mm -hmm. And if I'm free and feeling easy, I don't have to go to that. My mind is a pornographic magazine. You know? (laughs) I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm only, I'm, 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 no, no, but I'm only half joking, and, and I mean it in a very respectful sense. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. Mine is too. Some days, I, and I think that applies to most men. I think a lot of men. What's the joke? Men think about sex every six seconds or something. Uh, or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, another, yeah. Question, another question for you, Doctor Six. Yes. In a way, you're kind of in a lineage of. Sexologists, when you think about Kinsey and Masters and Johnson, Ruth, Ruth. you know, Dr. Ruth. Yes. What would you say that you sort of learned from these predecessors and Mm -hmm. what you're kind of bringing forward and changing in your own way? I am very grateful to them because if they had not done what they did, I would not have a profession. I don't know what I would be doing for a living because, frankly, this is the only thing that interests me. So I have tremendous gratitude that they were the pioneers 40-some years ago, and things have evolved. So, like, Kinsey did wonderful research, and he was a botanist or biologist or a zoologist or something like that. Mm-hmm. He wasn't initially a specialist in sexuality, but the Kinsey reports are wonderful books. And when I was in graduate school, we learned to do a sexual history based largely on how Kinsey did his sexual interviews. Mm -hmm. And you don't ask yes or no questions. You ask open-ended questions, like how many times have you done this, not have you ever done this. And Mm -hmm. Masters and Johnson also, the sensate focus, it was great at the time. The field has evolved. So sensate focus is not really the way to go anymore. And for those of your listeners who don't know what sensate focus is, 
It's an exercise where one person closes their eyes and is, say, laying on the bed naked, and the other person caresses them and touches them and stimulates them, and you just focus on the sensation. Mm -hmm. Now, it gets you present in your body, especially if you have performance anxiety. The big piece of that that is missing is connection and eye contact, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people, you might be surprised to hear, are still reluctant to do. Sometimes I ask people if they have their eyes open or closed, mm-hmm. and they're horrified that I would suggest they would have their eyes open. And, and I give them for homework. I said, go home and do some eye gazing, like even with your clothes on, and they can't go there. So, I mean, some more than others. But So they served their purpose. And Dr. Ruth, she was on late at night, yep. and still today, yep. any kind of sex talk on the radio is on late at night. It's not during drive time. She got people talking and she made it okay, but she was sort of the cute little grandmother. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not the cute little grandmother. Right. I'm a little younger and I'm a bit more hip, but she made it acceptable and accessible. Yep. Just so her laugh was, and giggle alone was worth yes. it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But she did not present as a sexual being. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's an interesting distinction. She made it safe because she was the Mm. non-sexual little German giggly grandmother. (laughs) And I don't mean to take anything away from her, but the field has definitely evolved. I still think it's a shame that any kind of sex talk is on late at night. I mean, I think we'll really have made progress when it's on during drive time or lunchtime. Yeah. I agree. And, And while you're on that subject... In the closing moments here, regarding the word sexologist, elaborate just a little bit for those that aren't totally familiar with the title. Sure. It's misunderstood, and a lot of people have never heard the term, as you mentioned. Sexology, it's not psychology. Sexology is a fairly new field, and there is an American Board of Sexology. I am certified by the American Board of Sexology. I have a certification number. And it's a field that is still very small, though growing. Go on LinkedIn. There's all kinds of budding sexologists. And it's a small field. You go to national conferences and there's like 400 people. I basically describe it as everything you wanted to know about sex and then some. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's specifically about sexuality. And, and in sexology, there are different branches. There's a lot of people study sexology to be educators. Mm-hmm. Not enough people study sexology to be researchers, and some people like me study sexology to be therapists. That's why I also got a degree in psychology, so that I learned how to do therapy, and then I learned how to do sex therapy. Mm-hmm. Okay, last question for you, Dr. Sex. If there's one thing you'd like to say that sort of encapsulates your message from Erotic Integrity, from your book, what would that be? What would be the key message? The key message is that erotic integrity is not just about what's happening between the sheets. It's about the bigger picture of how you show up in the world. Because when you know who you are and you are comfortable with who you are, and I mean all aspects of who you are, down to your sexuality, you show up in the world in a different way. And so the part of the value of erotic integrity, it's not about getting your rocks off better or more often. It's about being more comfortable in your skin and showing up in the world in a different way. 
just enjoying life that much more. Claudia, yeah. I, I want to thank you. Uh, we both want to thank yeah, you. Thank you so much. For shedding more light on finding ourselves sexually and uh, living a more fun-filled and truthful life. And I just want to tell listeners as well, for more information on Claudia's new book, visit her at drsix.net. That's D-R-S-I-X dot N-E-T. Claudia, yes. thanks so much. Yes, thank you thank very you, much Thank you, gentlemen. It's on. been a pleasure. You've been very interesting and well-informed, and this has truly been a pleasure. Awesome. Thank you, and all the best to you. Yes. Thank you. You too. Take care. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com.